the big game's coming up. I know the Bengals are in it. I think somebody else might be in it. I'm not sure. Uh, I think there's even a football game today, isn't there? Is there a football game today? It's not the one anybody watches, so it really doesn't matter. And so uh, this idea of playing hurt for a few weeks, we'll focus in on. Last week, we used the Apostle Paul's athletic metaphors to encourage us to keep pressing on when it's hard. We all need encouragement every now and then to just keep going, to not quit and don't give up. And perseverance plays a big role in any of the things that we can accomplish in our life. It's critical. But like a tight end who catches a short pass, uh, this week we'll take a different turn. We'll go a different direction. Because sometimes what you need more than anything else is to just call time out and to say, that's enough. I can't do anymore. I need to stop. I need to take a bit of a break. I've hit my limit. So a few weeks ago, I I don't know what day it was. It was a Monday. I know that. It was my day off. Donna takes Mondays off. And so we usually spend the day together. It's one of those snowy Mondays. And we thought, you know, we would get out and do a few errands. Not too much, you know, as snow's coming. It's getting a little chilly out. And we got to about, I don't know, four or five o'clock in the evening. And we had that question in front of us, you know, are we going to cook and clean up or are we going to pick up some food? And so picking up food went out. We thought nobody feels like cooking or cleaning up, which meant it just wasn't going to get done. So we thought, let's just pick something up. And, you know, that's snow. We wanted something homey and to eat. And so we wanted some good comfort food. And homey for us means Kentucky Fried Chicken. So that, that makes us think of home, of course. And so, so we pulled up there in Castle Rock at the drive through and sat there. And we could just, you know, our mouths were watering. We could just taste it already. And uh, we're waiting at the drive-thru, roll the window down, snow's coming in, we're waiting, it's getting colder in the car, we're waiting. They're not talking through me through the little talkie box, and so I'm thinking, what's, what's up? So we sit there a little longer, and we thought, I don't, something's weird. I mean, it's, it's a Monday, it's five o'clock in the afternoon, so we just pulled on around. We'll just go to the window, they must be busy. And we pulled around to the window, and we waited, and we waited, and looking around, and finally, a gentleman comes to the window, opens the window, and he says... Hey, I just, I hate to tell you this, but I'm the only one here and uh, we're closed. And I thought, you don't, your window's open, you don't look closed. And, you know, I, I know, I know the compassionate uh, part, empathetic part of my heart needed to say, you know, you, you're all by yourself. That's crazy. I mean, it's just so hard. This is so, I'm so sorry you've had this kind of day. And all these kinds of things should have flown out of my compassionate heart. But mostly what I wanted to say to him was, how many people does it take to cook chicken around here? I mean, you're here. The chicken's probably here. I'm here. Let's get some chicken going. We'll wait. We're good. We're in a warm car. Go get me some chicken. You know, that's what I, but I didn't, you know, I've used my little voice in my brain, learned to use it after a few decades, and we said, okie dokie, and drove on and left without chicken. And we, I just thought, this is, this is how it's been. I don't can you count on it? I don't know. I don't know if you can count on it. Is it open? No, it might be. I don't know. We'll see. What can you expect? The unpredictability? I mean, I, I, you've experienced the same thing where you've shown up and ordered something. They say, we we're out of it. The store's closed. All of these things we're experiencing. I, I came across this article not long ago. Gallup released it in December, uh, just a month and a half ago. This was the headline that I caught the next global pandemic, mental health. Their research shows, and this was the first line of the article, what if the next global health crisis is a mental 
health pandemic. And then they make it very clear, this is, this is happening now. It is, it is here now. And maybe you're aware of this. Maybe you've felt it. Maybe you have an understanding of this. Or maybe you've heard a lot about this and you want to keep it at bay because, you know, you're a positive thinker. And, you know, if, if we don't, if we kind of ignore it, maybe it'll go away. All of these things are a variety of reactions to the experiences that you and I are having. And they're having these experiences, all of us, in our families, individually, with uh, marriages, with our kids, uh, in organizations, among boards. You can see it everywhere. The first statement after this little headline was this. According to Gallup, anger, stress, worry, and sadness have been on the rise globally for the past decade. But this, of course, they're saying this happened long before the COVID-19 pandemic. But all of these anger, stress, worry, and sadness have reached record highs in 2020. That's two years ago. Imagine what's happening now. This, of course, is something to pay attention to, not only if you're a student of culture, you care about the people around you, but it might explain some of the feelings or experiences that you have, or what's happening in the context of your workplace, or among your neighbors in a variety of ways. The article says that right now, there are 41.5% of the population, the adult population, that would report or record significant amounts of depression and anxiety, more than doubled since the pre-pandemic levels. There are two researchers from Princeton that had to come up with a new categorization of a kind of mortality that they're seeing in our culture now. They didn't have a, a category for it or a place for it, and so they have come up with, they've even penned a book by the same title, Deaths of Despair. And it describes people who are dealing with issues. This is not suicide. What they called it uh, morbidly is a slow suicide. It's people who have issues of addiction who, since the pandemic, have engaged in that addiction. Uh, People who are dealing with levels of inactivity that caused a spike in Diagnosed cases of diabetes and obesity and things like that. All of these things are connected to our circumstances and what's happening not just in our communities, but of course globally, globally. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Just to breathe a little fresh air into your life. (laughs) The most insightful comments of the article say this. Anxiety and depression disorders manifest in very different ways than physical illness does. And while they can debilitate the individual, anxiety and depression disorders also can debilitate teams and families and schools and all institutions around them. How many of you resonate with that statement? Anybody? This might explain the tension at your workplace or among a board or among our local school board. This might explain how your relationships have more friction than it's used to having. This might explain why some of the feelings that you have are a little hard to pin down, a little slippery, difficult to manage. All of this is the current state of our culture. Now, 
my guess is your experience with this would have a whole lot to do with a variety of factors. Whether you have had some issues, struggle, depression, anxiety in the past, pre-pandemic, then some of this, of course, might be a bit triggering for you. And, and for that, we know that looking at this is painful, difficult, even a little bit um, uh, depressing. For some of us, it explains some behaviors or feelings that we've had or stuff we've observed in others But all of this, of course, is all right in front of us, all the time. Whether you find yourself at Walmart or Costco or sitting around your own dinner table, we see it. Now, with all of this in mind, for the last year, there's been a story in the Old Testament that has caught my attention and spent some time sort of unpacking it, trying to understand it better, And it's centered around uh, an incident in a gentleman's life that goes through some of the very same things that we are seeing at pandemic levels among us and in our culture, in our society. And this story, of course, will help us this week and next week to maybe unpack not just what's happening to us, but how we can react and help and be the kinds of people that God wants us to be in the relationships that we're in so that we can, in many ways, bring light and joy and peace and freedom to people who are experiencing depression and anxiety and worry and stress. And that might be you or it might be someone that you know. The story centered around a prophet. His name's Elijah. And Elijah shows up in our scriptures for the very first time in 1 Kings chapter 17. And this is pretty interesting because Elijah is really the the, the most well-known, well-respected of all the Jewish prophets. And what's fascinating about that is Elijah doesn't have his own book. Elijah doesn't have chapters and chapters that he's written. He just shows up on the scene, and this is the way he's introduced. We don't know much about his origin, just his hometown. We don't know anything about his family. We don't, he just kind of shows up. Elijah, who was born, who was from Tishbe and Gilead, and then the verse goes on to describe Elijah's relationship with the king at the time. His name is King Ahab, and King Ahab is the, the king of the northern kingdom. Now, that may not mean anything to you, But let me give you this two minutes of context. You might remember that Abraham became the father of the Jewish nation before it was even called Israel. And as they grew and grew into a people, they were ruled by spiritual leaders that we call judges, but they helped them find their way as they followed God. And eventually they became big enough to be a nation. And they said, we want a king. God says, you don't want a king. And they say, we want a king. So they got a king and that didn't go so well. And they got another king and eventually... Israel split into two nations, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Southern kingdom is the one you know about, Judea, and that's where Jerusalem sits. The northern kingdom was to the north, of course, but they were two separate kingdoms. And during this time in the Old Testament, first kings, they were ruled by a bunch of kings. That's why it's named that. Some were good and some were evil. Most were evil. And King Ahab was an evil king. And the way God dealt with people who led in evil ways is he would raise up a prophet. And the prophet would tell the truth. Here's what you're doing. You shouldn't be doing it. Knock it off. And then he would come along and say, and if you don't knock it off, this is what will happen in the future. And that's what Elijah did. And his story, you can read the entire story of Elijah. 
starting in 1 Kings 17, and just go for a few chapters, and you'll read everything that Elijah experienced that we know of in the Old Testament. But Elijah has this incredible lore about him. And one of the reasons why he's the most respected or revered Jewish prophet, well, when you read his story, you'll see he doesn't actually die. He's one of the, the only people we know that this is the case. And so you can read about that. It's pretty fascinating. When John the Baptist shows up, they say, is this Elijah? They think Elijah has come back. That's how impressive Elijah was. In fact, they even compared Jesus and Elijah and wondered what was up with that. When Jesus goes through this incredible moment called, we call it the transfiguration. Jesus is there on a mountain and there's some lights that come down. God speaks and Jesus is there with two Old Testament figures. One is Moses representing the law and the other is Elijah representing all of the prophets. So Elijah stands head and shoulders above even prophets like Jeremiah or Isaiah. And I don't know why, but he does. And this is his story. So you can read the whole thing. But when we pick it up, we'll jump ahead two chapters. And this is what chapter 19, verse 1 says. When Ahab, he was the evil king, remember. When Ahab got home, this is kind of funny. I think it's just like me and you when we get home, you know. Hey, honey, I'm home. This is what happened with Ahab, except he's talking to Jezebel, not a honey. And she's known, well, in fact, her name has become synonymous with an evil woman. She's a Jezebel, right? This is why. This is the woman that we're describing. When Ahab got home, he told his wife Jezebel everything Elijah had done. Now, what Ahab is describing is the the Super Bowl of prophet experiences. It's in the chapter before, and it happens around Mount Carmel, and I'm not going to tell you the whole story. That's not what we're about today, but you ought to read it for yourself because it's incredible. It's fascinating, and it is the most underdog story you could imagine for prophets. It is the biggest underdog story. It's 450 against one, Elijah versus all the prophets of Baal, and it is the stuff that, you know, Spielberg would make a movie out of. That's how incredible it is, and when I'm reading about Elijah up against these 400 prophets of Baal, 450, it made me think of the most lopsided Super Bowl, which we should mention today. The biggest comeback in Super Bowl history. Do you remember when it was? Well, it was just a few years ago. It was 2017. Do you remember who the quarterback was that brought the team back? We should mention it because he's retiring now, and we should at least give him a little bit of honor. Tom Brady, the Patriots, they came back against, anybody remember who? The Atlanta Falcons, right? They were down 28 to three in the third quarter with, I don't know, eight minutes left. And it was, well, the sports books were going crazy because Patriot fans, well, I heard there was a group in a bar in New England and they were about to place their bets on New England in the third quarter. And the odds were almost 1,000 to zero that they would pull this off. And one of the fans said, it's, I don't know if it's true or not, he said, wait, wait, I think Atlanta's about to score. Once they score, then we'll bet. And they did. 28-3, to Tom Brady brings him back. That pales in comparison to what Elijah experienced on top of Mount Carmel. And so Ahab comes home, tells Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed the prophets of Baal. Now, this is not news that Jezebel wanted to hear at all. And so this is what she says. Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the God strike me and even kill me. Not much of a threat, really, because all her prophets are dead. What kind of God is that? 
Nonetheless, may the God strike me and kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you, Elijah, just as you killed them. And Elijah receives this message, and his reaction is immediate, and it is surprising. And this is what the scripture says. Elijah was what? He was what? He was afraid. And then he, what did he do? He fled for his life. This is pretty surprising, honestly. I mean, Elijah just came off an incredible victory. He watched fire fall from the sky. I don't think any of us would be surprised if this verse of Scripture read very differently than this, as if Elijah would say to Jezebel, bring it. What are you going to bring that I haven't faced already? Come on, woman, let's take care of business. I'll meet you, I don't know, where else, top of some other mountain maybe, or maybe back to Mount Carmel where the deed happened. But there is a, at least part of me that reads this and is surprised by Elijah's reaction. But there's another part of me that is not surprised by it. I bet you have had some reactions over the last several months that have surprised you. You found yourself reacting in a way you thought, where did that come from? I didn't even know that was in there. I can't believe I said it that way. I can't believe I spoke that way to my kids or my spouse, or I can't believe I reacted that way to somebody in a public setting. They're just trying to be a good customer service person. I bet there's people in your circles where you have had a front row seat to their reactions and your thought was, that seems disproportional to what just happened. I can't believe they're reacting this way. And that's exactly what happens to Elijah. At this moment in his little cycle that we're going to observe and see in 1 Kings, Elijah's coming down after, after the adrenaline high of his big Super Bowl. I mean, I cannot imagine how his hormones, adrenaline and others, were fired up in the middle of this incredible contest. And after he comes down from that mountain, so does his adrenaline come down. After a rush comes a crash, and that crash is what Elijah is experiencing. And so he's afraid. Fear is his driver his main emotion and he runs he runs away from what he believes is an imminent threat to his life his very existence he went to Beersheba a town in Judah and and this is not an insignificant detail he left his servant there and this is a bit why this matters then he went on how alone into the wilderness. Our men gathered again for the first time yesterday for a men's Bible study. There's several men's groups that are kicking off this month and next month. And as we kicked it off, Tom Edwards led us into a discussion about how we've all felt alone throughout the pandemic. And I don't know why men have a reputation of not being able to talk about their feelings or emotions because these guys who don't know each other all that well confess very plainly and clearly what it felt like to be alone recently, especially during the beginning stages of the pandemic. And then as we got into small groups, more of that discussion continued. And it was very clear and very obvious that isolation has done a number on our perspectives, 
on our relationships, on our hope, on our understanding of ourselves, and on how we see other people. And there was something about that being said out loud by a few of our fellows and a few others as we got into small groups that made me feel like, well, I I was alone, but I really wasn't alone. There were some people that felt the exact same way that I felt. When Elijah leaves his servant in that locale and then heads off on his journey and he goes alone, he's not pursuing solitude for the sake of mental health or alone time or because he's an introvert or anything like that at all. This is the solitude of fear. This is the solitude of isolation. He is afraid, that's the operative feeling, and all he knows to do is gather himself all by himself and shut everyone out. And some of you have felt the exact same way as the fear of whatever you're facing becomes the key driver and you find yourself alone. So he went alone into the wilderness, traveling all day, and then it says this, He sat down under a solitary broom tree. It's probably a juniper of some kind. It's not one that we have around here. We have some that look similar, but this little broom tree is probably 10, 12 feet high. You find them a lot there in the Middle East, and they kind of give a little bit of shade, but not so high that the sun can kind of peek under. He sat down under this solitary broom tree and, and prayed that he might, what? Die. His feeling of, Solitude and depression, aloneness is sinking in. And he doesn't just feel this way, he expresses it. We don't just have the author of 1 Kings saying, this is what Elijah was feeling based on his countenance or maybe something that was explained or became a part of this tale later. Um, He expresses it and this is what he says. In fact, let's just say it together. I bet you've said this lately. Let's just say it together. You ready? Just in the green. I've had enough, Lord. Say it again. I've had enough, Lord. How many of you have said that in the last few months? Elijah says, I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. And so Elijah finds himself closing in. Emotionally, he's turning inward. You can hear, if it, maybe the, the, the negative way to say it is a sense of self-pity, and, but he's feeling hopeless. And his feelings of hopelessness are driving him to a place of despair. And it is this place of despair under a broom tree where things begin to come to fruition between Elijah, an angel, and God doing his thing. I bet you felt some of the same ways. And acknowledging it does not make it grow. In fact, acknowledging it means that you can think about it and deal with it. Denying it means that it only has power. Denying it gives it power that it should not have. And I love that Elijah was at least emotionally intuitive enough to at least say what he was thinking and feeling because then he and God can deal with it. But without this, then he's on autopilot. Without this, he's just running on fumes and is going to find himself in a place that maybe he cannot recover from. It's this moment in Elijah's life that artists over the centuries have been drawn to, famous artists. 
I mean, Elijah, we don't have very much. It's, it's like four or five chapters that Elijah's life is encapsulated in 1 Kings. And there are some moments, you know, Mount Carmel and others, that you, you, you might think an artist would be drawn to to paint this incredible, fantastic painting. But artists are feelers, and they're emotionally intuitive, and they're drawn to this moment where Elijah feels despair and wants to give up because the emotions that we experience... Well, if we can find a, you know, a compadre, a, a friend in those emotions, then we feel like we're not alone, in fact. And so Rembrandt, one of his most famous sketches, this is it, is, is this sketch that never became a, a full-on painting. It's, it's Elijah under the broom tree, under the juniper. And you can see that Rembrandt was beginning to capture in his face this, this sense of desperation and aloneness. Probably the most famous painting is this one. Uh, painted by uh, an artist, Daniel De Volterra is his name, and he's a 16th century artist. He was really better known for being one of Michelangelo's best friends. They were very good friends. And you can even see Michelangelo's influence in the, the physical form that he gave to Elijah. But what he tried to capture in Elijah's face and his vacant eyes is a sense of desperation and depression. And when he does this, we feel what Elijah feels because we have felt some of those very same things. He's trying to capture what mental health experts and researchers are giving very specific words to in our culture today. That the pandemic has created an assault on several fronts for us, emotionally, mentally. It, it started with the stress of the unpredictability of the pandemic. Do you remember when San Francisco went on lockdown? You remember that early in March? When San Francisco went on lockdown, and I don't know if you're like me, but what I thought was, and I read about that is, that's crazy California, right? Thank goodness that'll never happen here. And then a couple weeks later, the NBA shuts down. And then we're all going, oh, what is going to happen next? What's the answer to what's going to happen next? We don't know is the answer. And we didn't. And we haven't known for now two years. And so what happens when stress engages our physical body is a very interesting thing. It's the fight or flight response. It's, a, it's this part of your brain that's down here near the stem. It's called the amygdala. And when the amygdala kicks in, it's the same thing that our ancestors felt when they were cooking dinner and a saber-toothed tiger came around the tree. It's the exact same feeling. And that fight or flight response says, you need to move fast if you want to live. That's what it means, fight or flight. And the amygdala, for two years, has been going ping, ping, ping. Of course, that's not the only front. The stress or unpredictability of life, of course, it is manifested in things like anxiety and depression or being driven by fear. And when the amygdala fires up and we have some things settle into our normal everyday experience, like I've just described then there's a part of our brain that goes to sleep. It goes to sleep because we need to survive, but that part of our brain is the prefrontal cortex. 
You know what happens when you do something you shouldn't do and you have a physical reaction, you slap yourself? Where, where do you, in fact, raise your hand up. Raise your hand up and, and give me the, oh no, what I do that thing for. Show me what you do. Show me. There you go. That's good. That's what you, so you're hitting your prefrontal cortex when you do that. And so it's very appropriate because the prefrontal cortex is the decision maker in your brain. And most of you know that. If you took psychology in college, you understand all of this. But it's not just your decision maker. It regulates your emotions. It helps you sort through coping mechanisms. And it manages impulse control. So how's your prefrontal cortex doing? Have you observed anybody in your immediate vicinity that has a fired up amygdala and a asleep prefrontal cortex? Anybody acting a fool? That's how we say it in Kentucky. <laughs> this is the same thing. All of this, of course, is exactly what we have described in scientific terms, what Elijah is experiencing under the broom tree. He's afraid. He doesn't know what's next. He has no idea what to do with it. Now, Elijah's experience under the broom tree is going to help us understand how he proceeds from it and what unfolds in this chapter in 1 Kings. And this is just part one. Next week, we'll talk about the impact of this, what it means for us and how we address it, and how we can as followers of Jesus, show up in every relationship we have knowing that many of us either feel this way or someone we love feels this way. But what happens with Elijah initially is important for us today. And this is what happens next. He lay down and he slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and what? And eat. Now, he didn't have fried chicken waiting for him, uh, but it was comfort food. It was food that is meant to at least signify or show. In fact, if, if you go back, you can see that uh, Daniel Volterra, he included this, this comfort food in his painting. So he looked around, and there beside his head was some bread baked. I mean, can you imagine a a better smell, on hot stones and a jar of water. And so he ate and he drank, and then he laid down again. What's the first thing that happens when Elijah begins to encounter God and an angel at this moment? He eats and he sleeps, and then he sleeps again. He's going to eat again. I have no idea how often this happened over this little period of time when Elijah is trying to get nurse back to health. The fear has taken hold. It's time for him to concentrate on the basics of life. And the basics are meet your needs, take care of these needs, give your brain a chance to catch up, let your primitive brain calm down and allow some rest to give you the restoration that you need. You've experienced this in your life. The problem that seems insurmountable at 11 o'clock at night suddenly seems solvable at 8 in the morning. 
the issues that you face or the fear that you face after a good night's sleep or once you're not hangry anymore, all of a sudden you begin to see some things clearly. There is much more that happens in Elijah's experience that's going to inform us. Um, But what the angel says next is helpful for you and me. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more. Why? Or the journey ahead will be too much for you. And I feel like that's true of me. I feel like it's probably true of you, whatever circumstances you're in right now. And it's why our experience with communion today, I think will be meaningful, especially in light of Elijah's story. So if you're here and you're going to serve some communion today, if you would, just kind of make your way back and we'll get the elements ready. And they'll be around in the room in just a moment when we go to take communion. If you're at home online, we'd love for you to gather your elements and have them ready as well. When the angel says to Elijah, look, you're going to need to eat some more. We need to be sure that you're nourished, that you're ready for the journey ahead. He's about to take a long journey, and the journey has some important aspects to it. They're going to help us sort through some of this next week. But it reminds me of when Jesus was with the disciples, and he knew that their journey ahead was long as well. They were about to be tested. They were about to come up against all kinds of opposition. And their experience was going to mean that they would need everything within them to continue and take the steps that they needed to take. And in doing so, Jesus held up bread and he said, this is my body and it's broken for you. And he tore it the very same way his flesh would be torn the very next day. And he said to them, take it and eat it. This is for you. And then he held up the cup And holding up the cup of Passover that held the wine in it, in front of his friends, he said, this cup, this cup represents the new covenant. And this new covenant was a new arrangement with God. And it meant some very important things that we take with us and that we are reminded of every time we take communion and every time we drink of this cup that Jesus gave his friends. And here's what we're reminded of. Whatever enmity that you have between you and a family member or a friend or somebody at work, God wants you to know that you and him are good. Whatever lack of forgiveness that you've experienced in a relationship this week, God wants you to know that that's not the case between himself and you. That peace exists that you are forgiven, that shame has no place in your heart or in your mind. This peace that Jesus offered his disciples and that we're offered today in this place with these elements reminds us that all, in fact, is well. I mean, just like Elijah, it doesn't feel well. Some days we don't feel well. But these elements remind us that God's love is sufficient that he will never leave us, that as difficult as things are right now, that he is with you and he will see you through it, that he, in fact, is making all things new. And so today, when you hear from your friend at the table that this is the body of Christ given for you and the blood of Christ poured out for you, may you consume these elements knowing full well that God's presence will guide you through the most difficult of circumstances. 
And so, Lord, we receive these elements knowing this truth. We resonate with Elijah's experience. We know what it means to feel hopeless or desperate or lost or alone or fearful or anxious. Lord, we pray that in this moment we would get a glimpse of your comprehensive, full and complete love that your presence, well, for us, it's just a matter of opening our eyes and seeing you there with us. And as we take these elements today, we pray that your spirit would confirm this in us and with each of us together as a community, that you are love and that you will see us through. Lord, we're grateful for your mercy. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, and we say together, amen.